was a peculiar hybrid of a show. Part science fiction high concept, part spy thriller, part comedy, part action-adventure, part rom-com. It's a mix that shouldn't have worked, but it did. Wonderfully. Chuck starred Zachary Levi as Chuck Bartowski. In the pilot episode, we find Chuck at a low ebb. He's been kicked out of his Stanford University for cheating, a crime he did not commit. Worse still, he was accused of this act by his best friend and roommate Bryce Larkin, played by future white-collar frontman Matt Bomer. To add insult to injury, Larkin not only got Chuck kicked out of school, he stole his girlfriend, Jill, who we will eventually see, played by Jordana Brewster. He's back living with his sister, Ellie Bartowski, played by Sarah Lancaster, in Burbank, and wasting his skills working at the local Bymore with his best friend, Morgan Grimes, portrayed by Joshua Gomez. Chuck knows he's better than the Bymore, a thinly veiled knockoff of Best Buy, but he's lost, alone and floundering. He can't understand why Bryce did this, why his life, so full of promise, has turned to shit. Levi is instantly endearing as Chuck. It's a constant amazement to me that the Big Bang Theory, a show that mocked and belittled geek culture, was phenomenally popular for the better part of a decade, whilst Chuck a show that showed geek culture in a positive light struggled to find an audience for the entirety of its five-season run. It's easier to embrace clichés, I guess. I related to Chuck a lot more than anyone on Big Bang. Chuck is a good kind of nerd. He's not a whining fanboy like Sheldon Cooper, nor an indecisive gutless wimp like Leonard Hofstetter, nor a sexist stereotype like Howard Wolowitz. Chuck is a computer nerd, brilliant at coding, building and programming computers, and is interested in all the things such people are interested in. Comics, games, science fiction movies, but he's not interested in the easy targets aimed at by the Big Bang characters. Chuck doesn't have a Star Wars poster on his wall or quote Star Trek all the time. He has Dune and Tron posters on his walls and quotes Die Hard and The Terminator. He doesn't wear geek apparel, nor dress like he's five years old. He wears Converse and, often, an actual shirt. The comics he reads aren't the ones you can make easy snide gags at. He doesn't really read superhero stuff at all, preferring Why the Last Man or Ex Machina, although Chuck vs. The Honeymooners reveals he's a big fan of the Justice League. He's not a slacker. He's in a bad place, but he's not a loser or incapable of holding a conversation with regular people. In other words... He's a recognisable character, and not a two-dimensional stereotype. After a few years, Bryce comes back into Chuck's perfectly disordered life. It turns out Bryce was co-opted by the CIA whilst at Stanford, and is now an agent. In fact, the opening of the pilot episode is a massive bait-and-switch. Matt Bomer is exactly what you would expect a leading man to look like, Tussled of her, square of jaw, handsome, and easily a candidate alongside Daniel Craig and Bradley Cooper for the Blue Eye Porn Award. Or so my wife informs me. It's a shock, therefore, that after a frenetic and action-packed opener, Bryce is seemingly killed, but not before sending an email to Chuck. An email that will alter the direction of Chuck's life forever. Chuck is an almost prototypical American action show. Sure, we like to rag on network television, but they aren't afraid to take ideas that would be laughed out of the room in any other country in the world and give them a go. What's that? Show about a talking car? Sure, we'll give that a go. 
A man who turns into animals, you say? Why the hell not? On paper, Chuck is as ridiculous as the best of them. But, as is the norm with any high-concept piece of hokum, it's all in how well it's handled. Thankfully, with Chuck, it's handled very, very well. Here's the concept. Be careful you don't get too high. When Bryce, who has apparently gone rogue, emails Chuck, the email contains an attachment that, when opened, downloads the entire database of a secret neural supercomputer called the Intersect into Chuck's brain. We'll ignore that a computer genius like Chuck should know better than to open an attachment from an untrustworthy source. Since the information was stolen by Larkin and the government's copy was destroyed in his attempted escape, Chuck is suddenly considered an invaluable asset to the USA's counterintelligence activities. To this end, both the National Security Agency, the NSA, and the CIA want the intelligence returned. However, Chuck experiences flashes of information from the database, activated by certain triggers around him. Faces, voices, in-context keywords, sometimes visual cues, and as such it can't be taken from his brain, nor can he simply be hidden away. He's more used to them in the field, as it were. To that end, Chuck is promptly assigned two handlers, NSA Major John Casey, played by Adam Baldwin, and Sarah Walker, the preternaturally beautiful Yvonne Strahovski. They are both given cover IDs, Casey as a Bymore employee, and Sarah as the new employee of the local Wienalicious. Sarah is also set up as Chuck's cover girlfriend to explain why she's always around. With Chuck now functioning as the Intersect, using the knowledge he now possesses to help the government thwart assassins and international terrorists, his previously uneventful life is upended. In true Marvel Comics fashion, in order to preserve their safety, Chuck must keep his newfound position as an intelligence asset a secret from his family and friends. The Marvel Comics analogy is especially ironic because, given this is a Warner Brothers show, Chuck doesn't seem to read Marvel Comics. Sarah and Casey are chalk and cheese. Casey is an ultra-conservative, orders-obsessed-by-the-book kind of guy who salutes his picture of President Reagan whenever he leaves his apartment and has no time for Chuck's sensitivity and woman feelings. He communicates largely in grunts and is exceptionally good at his job. Much humour is derived from Casey, a man used to dealing with real-life-and-death situations, suddenly having to deal with the backstabbing, petty problems of the buy-more staff. Casey's a very interesting character. He's the most inflexible, but the one who develops the most, recognising Chuck's loyalty and innate goodness as assets, not hindrances. There's even hints early on, thanks to Adam Baldwin's performance, that he wants Chuck and Sarah to get together, seemingly rooting for these crazy kids. In his own way. Sarah, by contrast, is quieter, more approachable, but more closed off, even if she's just as deadly. Casey grows to appreciate Sarah's abilities, and even refers to her as the best partner he's ever had on more than one occasion. Sarah, as we learn in one episode, was recruited by the CIA after her father, a con man and a grifter, was busted, and the talents he taught her put to better use. It's hinted at more than a few times that Sarah may not even know what her real name is anymore. She has no life other than the job, and arguably is sadder and more lonely than Chuck is said to be. Chuck, at least, has a family and friends. Sarah and Casey have no one. Music is very important to Chuck. 
be it the musical score, which is often very reminiscent of John Williams' score for Raiders of the Lost Ark, to the music choices in the episodes themselves. These can vary from music from other films. Ennio Morricone's theme from A Fistful of Dollars, Huey Lewis's from Back to the Future, or even some Ludwig van from Die Hard and A Clockwork Orange crop up more than once. Sometimes it's the use of a pop song or a rock song, be it Indie Darling's The Shins or her metal rock like David Lee Roth. The theme to the show is Short Skirt, Long Jacket by Cake. that with lyrics. 
The early episodes deal with Chuck adjusting to his new life, and the show gets a lot of mileage out of themes such as when is lying a good thing, are people really what they seem to be, and what to do in your life when you're 20 and have no direction. It's a credit to the writers that they juggle all these elements seamlessly. Every episode has a case of the week, character development, a buy more or Ellie subplot, and rarely are the relationships given short shrift. Ellie's fiancé, Devon Woodcomb, played by Ryan McPartland, is nicknamed Awesome by Morgan and Chuck because he's one of those supremely irritating guys who's good at everything, as well as being a doctor. He should be infuriating, but is actually really endearing, trying to help Chuck out and give him emotional boosts. Morgan has a massive crush on Ellie, which is sometimes borderline creepy, but the writers toned that down as the season wears on. The Bymore staff are also fleshed out, and given greater roles as we go, with Big Mike, the store manager, Lester, Jeff and Anna all given episodes that make them more than token characters. Lester and Jeff are the worst characters in the show, and what today would be known as incels. Jeff is okay, being more of a goofball slacker, but Lester is a total creep and lech. Anna is there to take these two losers down, be it verbal snark or a quick clip around the ears. But it was rare that I took to these two. They also brought out the worst in Morgan, especially when Chuck wasn't around. The first season is a massive amount of fun. Each episode normally features a dramatic set piece with Chuck in the centre of the action, despite being bewildered at everything that's happening. There's also drama at home, hijinks at the Bymore, and a running subplot of Sarah's and Chuck's fake relationship, possibly becoming something more. One of the other themes of Chuck is family, particularly the post-2000 idea that we make our family and aren't just confined by blood. Sarah never had a family, and as she's welcomed into the Bartowski home by Ellie, she starts to see there's more to life than the job. She starts to make friends, and in Chuck's he's a good and honest man of a kind she's never really known. As a child and an adult, she's lived her life moving from place to place under assumed names, never settling down. One of the best episodes in season two, Chuck vs. the Cougars, has Sarah's life upended when she is recognised by someone she went to high school with. Of course, there's danger following her old friend, Heather Chandler, played by Nicole Ritchie, and Sarah is forced to look back on her unhappy childhood and school life, whilst Chuck just spends the episode amused that the super-secretive Sarah was actually in the band, playing violin, but still. Levi plays off Strahovski's discomfort to great comedic effect. And as an aside, Ritchie is surprisingly good in this episode, a much better actor than her Simple Life co-star Paris Hilton was when the latter appeared on Veronica Mars. All of the characters in Chuck develop. For Casey and Sarah, it's about spies, people who have only ever been spies learning to be human and the importance of human interaction. For Chuck and Morgan, it's about growing up, going from the period of your life when college is over and your life is no longer mapped out for you, so... Now what? That's the question Chuck endeavours to answer over its run. For Ellie and Awesome, it's what happens after you have your life sorted out. Marriage, children and settling down are the major changes wrought when that happens. The episodes are also chock full of nerdy references, both subtle and not. Give yourself a gold star if you recognise the name Heather Chandler, and also the name of Sarah's father, Jack Burton, played by Gary Cole. One of my favourite subtle gags was Chuck having a copy of the trade paperback Superman vs Brainiac on his bedside table. 
In addition to the nerdy gags, the guest star list on Chuck is most impressive. Bruce Boxleitner, Tron himself, in a nice nod to Chuck's favourite movie. Morgan Fairchild, Brandon Routh, Kristen Kruk, Timothy Dalton, Scott Bakula, Linda Hamilton, Dolph Lundgren, Christopher Lloyd, John Larroquette, Carl Lumley and many, many more had cameo or substantial appearances. One of the funniest guest star one-shots was Chuck vs. Santa Claus, where not only was the entire episode's score a nod to Die Hard, but Reginald Vell Johnson appears as Sergeant Al Powell. There's a great bat-dance reference in the pilot. Sir addresses a slave layer in one show. And, of course, Scott Bakula gets to say, Oh boy. There's even an extended gag that references, of all things, Heart to Heart. In the season two finale, we even get to see the captain of the USS Enterprise, Bacula, and the commander of Babylon 5, Box Leitner, share the screen. As with all shows of this type, there's a massive amount of wish fulfilment to Chuck. One week, Chuck may have to attend a fancy ball, dressed to kill with the gorgeous Sir on his arm. The next week, racing through LA trying to defuse a bomb. It doesn't hurt that the cast all look great. The camera especially loves Strahovski, who never looks anything less than stunning in an ever-increasing array of skimpy outfits that Sarah herself mocks in Chuck vs. the Kept Man. There's a running gag that every time Chuck sees Sarah, she moves in slow motion, with a her blowing behind her, even when she's inside. And for all its action and high concept, Chuck never forgets it's the characters we care about. Even Casey ends up being downright lovable, especially after he screws up and is fired from the CIA. Season 1 is only 13 episodes, a casualty of the Writers Guild strike in 2008. This put the show in a precarious position regards renewal, but due to that aforementioned strike, the network, NBC, had very little else prepped, and so they rolled the dice on a second season for Chuck. This season saw some changes to the show's format, with Sarah leaving the Wienerlicious and given a better cover story, that of owner of Orange Orange, a frozen yoghurt eatery. This, of course, was also a secret home to Castle, an underground base of Batcave-like computers that allowed Chuck to instantly access whoever his most recent Flash was about. It also gave the series another standing set, always a good way to save some money. As the series carried on, the show manages to get increasingly bizarre and even more far-fetched. Does everyone Chuck knows end up being a spy? And yet it manages to walk that line between parody and serious drama for most of its five seasons. They also take a few risks, never letting the show get stale by allowing both Sarah and Chuck to get together and stay together, mostly, and letting Chuck's family in on his situation. The secret ID is a noteworthy and important part of superhero mythology, but on a TV show that will run for a finite amount of time, the characters and setting have to change, develop, grow. Season 2 also examines the intersect and what it actually is, and gives the series a recurring bad guy in the form of an evil in-country organisation called Fulcrum. This gives more focus to the episode's plots, with a clear stated goal, stop Fulcrum and don't let them get their hands on the intersect, rather than the season one approach, which was basically protect Chuck at all costs. It's arguable that it's at the end of season two that the show really embraces the wacky. Chuck learns that the man who designed the intersect is actually his father, Stephen Bartowski, played by Scott Bakula. Bryce knew this and was actually looking after Chuck and working with Chuck's father who asked for Bryce to send it to Chuck. 
The season four finale adds another wrinkle to this, explaining why Stephen sent the Interceptor Chuck in the first place. Anyway, Stephen has found a way to remove the Intercept from Chuck and put it in a proper spy, Bryce, where it was always meant to be. Sadly, Bryce is killed, for real this time, as Bomer had landed a series lead gig on White Collar, and Chuck ends up with Intercept 2.0 in his head, which now allows him to perform martial arts, as well as coming through with the knowledge. These changes served two purposes. One, it gave an ending, of sorts, given the show was once again on the chopping block, but two, it also offered a direction for the show to go in in the future. Sadly, the threat of cancellation never changed, and Chuck was almost permanently on the bubble, a term for a show that isn't a blockbuster hit, but does have medium to steady ratings, thus making it a difficult decision every year as to whether to renew or cancel. This situation dogged Chuck for its entire run, with each season only being picked up for 13 shows, and then the writers, staff and cast all left hanging, wondering if the show would return for the back nine, let alone another season. The series was saved by, of all places, Subway. The fans, learning that the show was on the bubble after season two, convinced Subway to sponsor the show in return for fans buying their product and some prominent placement on the show. Chuck remains the only show to be renewed by a fan campaign that survived for more than one season after being saved. This wasn't as random as it seemed. The Buy More team were regularly seen eating footlongs before the sponsorship deal, but afterwards it became a running gag. Of course, all the uncertainty around the renewal meant Season 3 had to do some heavy lifting and retconning to get back to where it was. Sarah and Chuck had admitted their feelings for each other, so that needed getting rid of, although thankfully the producers realised that this couldn't go on forever. Likewise, Chuck and Morgan had quit the Buy More, Chuck to go off with Sarah and Morgan to go to Hawaii with Anna. Both characters needed reinstating, as did Big Mike, who had been deposed by Emmett Milbarge, played by an obsequious and cowardly Tony Hale. Milbarge met a rather grisly death, for this show, shot through the head, and the rest of the Bymore employees never learn of it, Casey hiding that fact from Chuck. Casey also uses the CIA to bring back Mike, Morgan, and reinstate his own cover. Sadly, Anna doesn't return. Julia Linger, casualty of the budget cuts that affected every season of the show from now on. This means the buy more turns more into a sausage fest. Lester and Jeff were tolerable when Anna was there to make gag faces and keep Morgan from his worst excesses. Without her, Jeff and Lester become even more intolerable. I didn't find them endearing or funny, and I wouldn't have been upset if they've had their throats slit in a mission gone wrong. But that may just be me. By the midpoint of season three, with cancellation a real possibility yet again, the producers said fuck it and got Sarah and Chuck together for good. I wonder if this decision was made in hindsight, as when looking back, some of the storytelling decisions made in the first half of season three are a little lacking. Chuck stands Sarah up to fully embrace being a spy, but is then surprised that she's annoyed with him. She is very cool to him throughout the first half of the season, even getting emotionally involved with yet another colleague, Brandon Routh's Daniel Shaw. General Beckman, the team's CIA handler, must have a really low opinion of Sarah's professionalism, this being the third partner she's succumbed to. Chuck then spends the remaining episodes wondering if he really wants to be a spy at all, a development that grew tiresome, given he spent most of season two embracing the exotic lifestyle. 
involving Morgan in the spy life also seems dubious, and having Casey be discharged was silly. Thankfully, the resolution of all these plot threads in episode 13 meant the series could get back on track, but I think we can all be thankful the series didn't end there. The final six episodes of season three are tied to what went before, with Chuck learning the intersect is causing him brain damage, and brings back Scott Bakula as Steve Bartowski, and Brandon Routh as Shaw, who miraculously survived being shot four times in the chest and falling into the River Seine. Finally, Ellie finds out that Chuck is also a spy, meaning that all of Chuck's inner circle are now in on the secret. Casey learns he has a daughter, and we learn that he too is living under an alias. These final six episodes make the first part of the season better in retrospect, and for the first time the stakes in Chuck feel real and dangerous rather than frothy fun, with Ralph especially excelling at playing a truly bad guy. The season concludes with the show once again trying to both provide an ending while simultaneously leaving open doors for a continuance should the show be renewed. Thankfully it was, and season 4 ends up being the longest season in the series, clocking in at 24 episodes. Coincidentally, it was the season that really tanked in the ratings, making a fifth season look highly unlikely. Which is a shame, as the first 13 episodes of season 4 are a real return to form, especially after Linda Hamilton and Timothy Dalton arrive. Dalton is clearly having a ball, playing against type, and he made a big impact on the rest of the cast. As an aside, it's a real shame he got shafted by production delays on lawsuits on his run as Bond, because based on how he looks here, he could have played Bond for 20 years easy. The show has fallen into a formulaic structure by now, through no fault of the producers. With every season being on the bubble, the main storylines are wrapped up after the first 13 episode order. Then there's a few standalone episodes as the writers regroup and decide how to fill out the remainder of the season, before the next, shorter story arc kicks off. It's never seamless, but here at least the character subplots of Ellie and Awesome's new baby, Chuck and Sarah's impending nuptials, and Casey's relationship with his daughter Alex at least give them somewhere to go. The writers do a good job of making the joins seem seamless, tying together the second half's worth of stories with the first half, and culminating in the wedding of Chuck and Sarah. Again, the writing may have been on the wall, and the season ends with the team all fired from the CAA. Chuck, however, helped Timothy Dalton and his daughter, The Walking Dead's Lauren Cohen, escape, and in return, Timothy Dalton signs over the $1 billion his companies are worth over to Chuck. Chuck, Sarah and Casey then decide to go into business for themselves, but not before Chuck is divested of the intersect, and it finds a new home. In Morgan. That is not going to end well. Season 4 was the last really great season of Chuck. Season 5 saw the budget slashed with some cast members downgraded to recurring and was also a partial reboot. Chuck, Casey, Sarah and Morgan are now for hire as Carmichael Industries, Charles Carmichael being Chuck's alias through the earlier seasons of the show. The main problem with this scenario is that the Intersect is still a valuable spy tool. So why would the CIA not just assign a team to Morgan or take Morgan away? Casey, Chuck and Sarah are fired from the CIA for ignoring orders. That's fine, perfectly understandable under the circumstances, given that Sarah was about to die. And now that Chuck doesn't have the Intersect, he's of no interest to them. But the CIA leaving Morgan to his own devices, arguably a man even more inept than Chuck was in the early days, makes no sense. 
Thankfully, the seeming plot problem was addressed. Morgan can't handle the intersect and starts becoming an egotistical jerk. This puts him more on the CIA's radar and a kill order is placed upon him. Team Chuck must try to reach Morgan and get the intersect out of his head before serious brain damage occurs. The problem with season 5 is it's all over the place. Stories start and are wrapped up before they really get going. There's no intersect anymore, so we're just expected to believe Chuck is now a decent fighter without the intersect showing him how. Following the conclusion of the Morgan arc, a convoluted storyline involving the return of General Beckman and Brandon Ralph, Team Chuck are invited back into the CIA, and there's no logical reason for Casey to turn them down. Chuck and Sarah, sure, they're newly married, thinking about buying a house and settling down, and Sarah's having second thoughts about potentially raising children whilst being a spy. They both saw how that went for Ellie and Chuck. But Casey? Yes, he has his new relationship with his daughter, Alex, but it takes a relationship with Carrie Ann Moss as a rival security agent to really keep him in LA. There's even a Stan Lee cameo this season for no real reason, although it places Chuck in the MCU if you want it to. Overall though, season 5 is very definitely ropey. I'm not sure if they had new writers or if the lack of budget hampered them too much or if the new scenario removed what was unique about the show, but it felt like something that had been left in the fridge too long and had gone off. It's more alias now than Chuck. The gags aren't as smart. The character's ever so slightly wrong. Chuck is too touchy-feely. Sarah is too emotional. Casey a little too nationalistic. Nothing too serious, but off. There's also a difference between action and violence, and the producers cross that line frequently in the fifth season. Sarah, for example, takes so many blows to the head this season, she'd clearly be brain-damaged, even without the intersect. Casey likewise kills far more people, now he's a private citizen, than he ever did when he was CIA. Chuck is both too competent and too naive, often at the same time. Sometimes the character only works at all because of how endearing Zachary Levi is. It was nice to see Jeff shown to be smart once he was cured of carbon monoxide poisoning, and his character development over the fifth season is one of the best things about it. It's also good to see Lester taken down a peg or two and thrown in jail, but Morgan losing his geek memories was dumb, and once the intersect is out of his head, there's even less for him to do than when he didn't know Chuck was a spy. The Ellie awesome buy more stories also seem more contrived now, with Ellie suddenly developing amazing talents in brain surgery and application. The show gets grimmer as it heads into its final three episode, foregoing a lot of the light comedy that made it so appealing in the first place. Sarah is forced to take on the intersect, the same faulty intersect Morgan had, and it starts to cause her severe memory loss and brain damage. The penultimate episode, Chuck vs. Sarah, has evil genius Quinn who wants the intersect, leading Sarah to believe that the last five years were all a mission, and now she has a new one. Kill Chuck Bartowski and get his final pair of internet spectacles. He does this by constantly making Sarah flash, causing perhaps permanent memory loss and brain damage. I did feel that perhaps this storyline should have been the return of Brandon Routh, rather than the one from earlier on, as it would have meant much more to us and to the characters if the bad guy was someone we had an emotional connection to. 
That being said, the season almost pulls out of its death spiral here, with a two-part finale that is emotional and entertaining. Now, I'm not a shipper, but my daughter and I have been totally there for Chuck and Sarah throughout the entirety of this dopey love story. So to see Sarah completely forget not only her relationship with Chuck, but also Casey and Ellie and all of the character development the character has undergone is heartbreaking. The final scene is openly optimistic as to the future. A future where Shuck live happily ever after and have two kids, a girl named Casey and a boy named Stephen John. That was mine and my daughter's fanfic. The writing, however, was definitely on the wall this time. Chuck had pulled off a last-minute renewal for the last time. Team Bartowski could save the world from terrorists, rogue spies and enemy agents, but they were defeated by the one foe no TV show can triumph against. Audience apathy. The series walked off into the sunset, literally, with all the characters given adequate, if not entirely satisfying, closure. Chuck was one of the last of its breed, a show built around one charismatic star. When I was a kid, this was the norm. Tom Selleck carried Magnum P.I., Bill Bixby carried The Incredible Hulk, Scott Bakula carried Quantum Leap, amongst many other shows you could mention. And whilst Chuck was an ensemble show, and everyone in that ensemble was perfectly cast, the show was built around one man, Chuck. Zachary Levi drove the action. The show was about him, and he handled it with aplomb. All the cast have gone on to great success, but Levi's is especially satisfying. Despite the problems I had with the final season, Chuck is perfectly enjoyable hookum in these trying times. Even the fifth season is watchable, and it's hard to find much to fault with it on an entertainment level. The tone of the show is pitch perfect, the casting absolutely amazing, and it's a show the whole family can enjoy together. Despite all the viewing options now available to us, this swiftly moved up to the must-see in the Leyland household. It took prime place, the thing that we all watch together after we've had tea. It's a show I like, that my son and daughter also enjoy, that my wife will watch as well. It's funny, heartfelt, action-packed, dramatic and thoroughly entertaining. The 45 minutes Chuck is on just whiz by. Levi has talked recently about developing a Chuck movie or a streaming TV miniseries similar to the Gilmore Girls and has said all the cast are on board. I hope it happens. I'd love to see what Team Chuck are up to ten years later. hope you enjoyed that hope you enjoyed listening to me waffle on about chuck if you haven't seen it check it out it's on amazon prime uh let's have a look at the email should we our first email tonight sorry i haven't sent in more feedback is from alistair jakes it's fine alistair you know you can email him whenever you want about whatever you want but don't feel you have to hi andrew hi alistair i can watch eight hours worth of 30 minutes or one hour episodes in a row but a one and a half hour film always feels like more of a commitment so i've not watched star trek 4 yet and did not want to listen to your review of the novels of the film as a result. 
I'll get around to it someday. I just wanted to reassure you I wasn't dead. I've been playing lots of modded Skyrim Special Edition and trying to distract myself from everything 2020 keeps throwing at me. <laughs> you and me both, mate. I haven't listened to it yet, but I saw you have now covered the final part of the Stanley era of Spider-Man, so congrats. I do not blame you if at some point you do cut off your Spider-Man retrospective, though I am morbidly curious about the clone saga. I do hope you will continue your Spider-Man reviews for at least the time being. I hope you are all well and staying safe. All the best, Alistair. Well, thank you, Alistair. I hope you are too. As I said to Ryan Daly last time, have no fear. Spider-Man will never be far away. And uh, more on that in just a few moments. Our next email, uh, episode 152, Amazing Spider-Man 106 through 110. And episode 153, Stanley's Epilogue by Oliver Villar. Hey, Andy. Just finished listening to both episodes 152 and 153. For me, issues 106 and 107 weren't that great, but it was really cool to see JJJ joining the protesters. When Spider-Man is sprayed with the ethyl chloride in issue 106, it happens once again in issue 291 when Spencer's son Alistair sprays him with it this time round. In fact, I believe that's the one time the issue 106 was ever referenced in a later Spider-Man story. Earlier in the episode, you mentioned my missive from issue 28, where he must have been 17 or 18, before the graduation later in the story. And if he was 19, by issue 106, Smythe definitely had a horrible memory. According to comic creators on Spider-Man, John Romita stated that his favourite issues to draw were 108-109, because he was a fan of Milton Caniff, and he had a chance to do Vietnam scenes and Asians in the Caniff style. My all-time favourite Spidey Doctor Strange team-up would be from Annual 14 by the late Denny O'Neill, Frank Miller and Tom Palmer. Too bad Stan left after issue 110 as he seemed to leave everything unresolved and left it all to Jerry Conway to conclude the story arc. In fact, Jerry had to tie up everything that Stan had abandoned, including Gwen's scolding of Aunt May babying Peter and Flash's crush on Gwen. For me, the Gibbons' best moments when he joined the Legion of Losers, alongside Kangaroo 3, The Spot and The Grizzly, during James DeMatteis' second run on Spectacular Spider-Man from the late 90s. Unfortunately, during Nick Spencer's hunted story arc in Amazing Spider-Man, the Gibbon was murdered by the Hunterbot after the Vulture double-crossed him. As for Josh, whose last name is Kitling, as revealed in the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, Spider-Man 2007 edition, he makes one more appearance in the second story in issue 622, as one of the many members of the supporting cast who attends Flash's birthday party, at least according to the entry for that issue in the Marvel Database website. Josh is only seen from the back, wearing a cap and having lived in California for years. The colorist also coloured him as Caucasian. Whoops! The same story also marked the return of Shah Shan as his physical therapist. I'll have to have a look at is that after he came back and had lost a leg and before he became Venom. I'll look at that, because I liked the character of Josh. He feels like a very contemporary character to me, very Spike Lee. And uh, he strikes me as, given everything that's going on at the minute, a good character Marvel could bring back in some capacity. I only liked issues 116 through 118 for the Ramita art and the fact that the issues released during the 1972 US presidential election in which Nixon defeated George McGovern for a second term in office. I loved the story in Annual 18 as it was promoted as Stan's first script in 12 years. I was never a fan of DeFalco's dialogue style, so having reread this over the years, I'm glad he only plotted the story. I found the art to be quite jarring at times, but it wasn't the most horrible thing in the world. I really loved the relationship between JJJ and Son and that John was able to accept the marriage between his father and Marla. This would be the Scorpion's last appearance until issue 318, when McFarlane was the regular artist on the title. 
if I'm not mistaken, this was the second major marriage in Amazing Spider-Man. The first being the marriage of Ned and Betty back in issue 156. Liz and Harry's wedding was never documented, and they were already married by the time they appeared together in Spectacular Spider-Man 63. I actually enjoyed Fear itself, and it was easy for me to differentiate between Conway's dialogue and Stan's. It was really cool to see the Conway-Andrew Esposito team back together again. Whilst it was great that Stan was able to write backup stories in Spider-Man annuals or even the anniversary issues, they felt underwhelming to me. I enjoyed the Spider-Man Kingpin to the death and had it signed by John Romita at the Orlando Megacon in 2002. Nine years later, at the same convention, I finally met Stan as did the photo op, which is now my Facebook cover photo ever since his passing. After the photo, he turned to me, smiled and said, Good job! Pity didn't say good job, true believer, isn't it? I'm so glad I had a chance to meet Stan before his passing. I always found that Stan's best work was on Amazing Spider-Man, The Fantastic Four and Thor. Stan was definitely the greatest, Oliver Villar. I'm glad that I got to meet Stan. It was only briefly and he signed my Amazing Spider-Man Omnibus Volume 1 and my little paperback edition of the first six issues of Stan Lee and uh, Steve Ditko's run. You know the Marvel Comics series? I got him to he signed that for me as well. And there it is. Just opened it directly on that page. How delightful is that? Thank you, Oliver. Our next email is from Tim Elliott. Danger is my middle name. Hello, Tim. Hello, Andy. It's been a while since I wrote in and I wanted to keep the communication lines open. Once again, you have reached the heavens and pulled out a top-notch show. I was always familiar with Danger Man or Secret Agent, but never had the opportunity to watch. Well, I can cross it off my list as I watched my first episode soon after finishing your show. It has a very saint feel to it. I'm a fan of Mr. Moore's earlier TV work, and Drake acts more like a police detective than a spy. As an actor, I always felt McGowan was keeping the audience at arm's length, like he didn't want you to get too close. I loved him in the Columbo episodes he did in the 70s. All in all, it looks like a cracking good show. Did I use the vernacular correctly? Yes, you did, Tim. That's perfectly good. Yes, watch more episodes of Danger Man. I've watched loads of them, even since recording that show. And they're brilliant. They really are good. The The first season's only half an hour, so they feel a little bit rushed. Sometimes you just feel like they're just getting going and it ends. But I suppose that's better today than, you know, 10-hour series dropping on Netflix that just plod along glacially. But um, overall, Danger Man's a very, very good show. It stands up really well, surprisingly. P.S. There is a first season Mission Impossible episode, The Carriers, that deals with a faux American town behind the Iron Curtain that trains operatives to be Americans in order to infiltrate the country and release a deadly contagion. Ah, that's interesting. I'm fascinated by stuff like that. I love it when different TV shows use exactly the same plots. Always interests me. Like, there's an episode of Starsky and Hutch called Starsky and Hutch to Gilter, where there are two lookalikes going around in a Ford Torino, ruining Starsky and Hutch's reputation. And then the A-Team has an episode called Showdown that is exactly the same story. I love it when shows do that. <laughs> uh, cheers, Tim Elliott, who hosts Third Degree Burn, a podcast about John Burns' comics works. Very good it is, too. Tim hosts that with Brian Hughes, so you should go and check that out, because it's great. And that's it for this time. The email bag is empty. The episodes continue to come along. Please feel free to comment. Drop me a line. Hey kids comics at virginmedia.com. Next time. Uh, I'm going back to Spider-Man. I told you it was never far away. The recent death of Denny O'Neill has caused me to go back and reappraise his run on the amazing Spider-Man. He did about 16 or 17 issues 
including the annual, so I've not decided yet whether or not to do that as two shows or one big one. We'll see how it turns out when I've written it. But um, I'm going to be approaching it slightly different to how I did Stan and Ditko and Ramita. So let's see if that works. Just an experimental new way of trying things out. But you've got to do that. You've got to try, try things differently every now and again to keep it fresh. Uh, I'll be back next time with that. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you enjoyed this. Feel free to get in touch if you wish. You know where I am. Uh, and I'll be back next time. Stay safe and everything's going to be fine. Eventually. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you.